Welcome to the Startup Help Desk, your source for answers to questions about building companies, starting companies, and the meaning of life. We have a panel here of experienced founders who are answering questions submitted by founders just like you. So stay tuned for lots of answers, lots of knowledge. This today, we're covering questions about recruiting, specifically recruiting your first team as you build your company. My name is Sean Burns. I'm a founder for the last 20 years of companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I've invested in hundreds of companies, advised many more, and I've made every mistake you can possibly make along my journey. I'm here to save you that same hassle. I am joined by some illustrious founders who are also here to share their knowledge. Ash and Nick. Hi, everybody. My name is Ash Rust, and I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at places like Trinity Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. Before investing, I was also an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at Clout, as well as the co-founder and CEO of SendUp. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders, and I've helped more than a 1,000 startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I am co-founder and CEO of a startup called Navi. We help folks learn innovation skills, solve mission-critical problems, and start companies. This is my second startup. My first one was a crypto startup. We had a good time. And as you can see, I keep signing up for more in this land of startups. I think it's really big of you that you keep mentioning that you're a crypto startup you know, founder back in the early <laughs> days. I just want to say that I still support you. We can That's still right. be friends. It, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I wish you the best. It's, it's a good reminder that life is not easy. That's for sure. Well, there you know is, what it is, Nick, uh, especially if you down. commit fraud as a, as a way of life. And just so we're clear, we're not suggesting that I did. We are suggesting that there are No, we're just talking about cri- right. other people. Yeah, crypto. <laughs> well, let's put it this stuff. way, Nick. It is proof that we have made mistakes as founders that we can share the answers to everybody's questions with. Let's put it that way. That's exactly and by the right. Way, if and you're in law enforcement and you're listening, Nick is definitely, definitely making this as all fiction. This never really happened. And he's in <laughs> okay. Hong Kong. He's in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, goodness. Today's episode are, again, all questions submitted by founders just like you. If you have questions that you'd like us to answer in future episodes, find us on the web. It's thestartuphelpdesk.com or find us on Twitter, thestartuphd. Today, all the questions, and by the way, it's great to get so many questions from the community. It's We're getting more and more questions all the time. Greatly appreciated. Please send them in. Today, all of our questions are recruiting great work your first on the bots, team. Nick. <laughs> How do you go from just you to having a team? And so all these questions are about building that first team, recruiting them, bringing them on board. And of course, the first question, and this comes in all the time, how do you find the right co-founder to start your company? Nick and Ash, this one's not easy. What do you think? This is a fantastic way to get this show underway. I think there's two two components that go into this. The first is where to find them. And the second is ultimately what you're looking for in a co-founder. And so when it comes to finding them, the general theme here is you have to be on the hunt for a co-founder everywhere you go. This could be through communities where you have shared interests. It could be through uh, trusted intros. It could just be serendipity where you end up connecting with somebody and then starting to collaborate in some capacity. The theme here is always be on the hunt for a co-founder. Ways that you can start exercising that muscle, that muscle, so to speak, are 
start building things together. You can work at hackathons together. You can just talk about problems facing the world and start going through some exercises around solving them. Just start seeing what kind of alignment you have around solving problems. And then lastly, don't expect this to be an overnight process. You can't just become best friends with somebody overnight. You're looking for someone that's got complementary skills, the need to have a risk tolerance that's compatible for you. And ultimately, you need to make incremental progress on this journey in terms of figuring out if there's a fit. Ash, what's your take? So yeah, really hard. And the way you solve really hard problems is daily work. So try and aim for at least five meetings a week around finding a co-founder if that is what you are working on at present. That means talking to everyone in the industry. Basically, anyone you know in tech, you need to hit up, try and get a meeting, ask them uh, to listen to you, you know, pitch, discuss the product, uh, and then see if they know anyone who might be interested. Also, go through their networks on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc., and have those lists of people ready to go so you can talk them through those lists if, uh, if they're perhaps less forthcoming with any names off the top of their head. Uh, certainly tap into old affinity networks, you know, those kinds of communities where you've already got an existing relationships where it's trusted. Uh, as Nick said, that's really, really powerful. And then the most common problem for co-founder search is people get discouraged and they just stop. So it's going to take months, right? Like you're by yourself, you got other responsibilities concurrently. So if you aren't able to focus on something, it takes a lot longer if you get discouraged and stop, then it's never going to happen. So a lot of solo founders uh, get discouraged and they stop searching for a co-founder and say, well, if someone comes along, but of course, that's never going to happen. Well, this is a good follow-up point because I meet a lot of founders whom they, they, they were so dedicated to finding a co-founder that they ended up settling for someone they might not have known as well. And it turns into a toxic situation later. Ash, to your point about being patient, like, how long do you try before you realize that maybe that person's not out there and you should be a solo founder versus pushing really hard just to have a co-founder and that actually might be worse than not having one? Well, you have to make progress. So it's okay to hire founding engineers, founding salespeople or first salespeople, first product people, etc. So this isn't a limitation in terms of making any progress on the business, but you should commit to working on it on a daily basis. And perhaps if you really cross the chasm and you're doing millions in revenue, then maybe the question should um, should no longer be relevant. And we're talking about executive hires. But by and large, I think you know up to most seed fundraising uh, level companies, you really should be thinking about it if you're a solo founder, at least from my philosophical perspective. One other thing a key ingredient here is if you just keep moving forward with your startup, then ultimately that increases the potential surface area to find the right kind of folks to come on as a co-founder too. And so as Ash was explaining there, it's spot on. Ultimately, you open up more doors for a co-founder by actually making progress on your idea. And this, this question is so important. Let me ask the inverse. So we just talked about how to find it. What is the anti-pattern? What are things you should you should avoid or what are mistakes that people make in picking a co-founder that lead to bad situations. Going to a hackathon, meeting somebody, building something at the hackathon, and then becoming co-founders on Monday. That is a, a recipe for tough times. And you can be able to map that out to not just the hackathon world. The key thing here is that you 
ultimately make a decision based off of only a small amount of data and a short amount of time. Those are the kind of things that can lead to bad outcomes. If you see red flags in the interview process, you have to remember that this person is on their best behavior during this time. So if you're working with somebody, you're doing trial projects together, you're um, interacting with them with the, on the premise that they might become a co-founder and it's not working out, there's a lot of conflict that you're talking over each other, you're not making good progress, then remember that's the best it's going to get. So uh, you really have to think twice about those kinds of people and your desperation for a co-founder can't overwhelm that and that need to make sure they're the right person. Fair enough. And I, I just for everybody out there that's struggling to find a co-founder, sometimes it can feel very frustrating because you just you want to get started. You just want to start your company. And so you just want to find a co-founder, get started. The way I recommend you think about it is finding a co-founder is your first test. It's your first test of being a founder, building your company. It's not a hurdle that that starts the company. It's your first test as a founder. So put time in, be patient. And please, please, please don't just jump at the first person that says yes, because the number of companies that have very difficult situations because of co-founder conflict are probably most of them. I don't know, Ash and Nick, how would, if you had to estimate how many companies fail or struggle with co-founder conflicts? Well, I would say that is the issue that Paul Graham brought up at the beginning of our Y Combinator course you know, 10 years ago when I did it back in 2012. He said, the thing that each startup is most at risk for here is co-founder breakup. And I wish I knew who it was going to be because then we'd we spend most of our time trying to stop that. It's spot on. Absolutely. It is something that plagues so many startups. I think the key, if you were to distill out a couple of key things to look for to try to limit your risk, if you find folks that have complementary skills, that's huge. I think another thing that's so important here is you need to understand how important it is to have compatible risk tolerance. If your ability to grind on a startup doesn't align well with the potential co-founder you've got, and you're not seeing eye to eye on what kind of sacrifice is required, that already is going to be something that is going to lead to difficulties. And so try to be able to probe these big risks and see if you can, of course, de-risk it for yourself and your co-founder. It'll, it'll benefit both of you to do so. High stakes. High, there is no higher stakes in the startup journey. Cool. Well, let's keep moving to make sure we answer more than one question in today's episode. Ash, what else is on our, our list of questions for today? All right. Next question. How do we convince people to join our very early stage startup? How do you get people to join your very early stage startup? Let me jump in here first. As I, 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 have, I have to say, I actually think in some ways this is harder than finding a co-founder. Um, and, and those ways are a co-founder position is very attractive. It's very prestigious. People look at co-founders as foundational in the company. Your first few employees, especially that first employee you hire, is probably as foundational as the founders, but it, they don't have that prestigious title of co-founder. And they often don't have as much equity. Um, and so how do you convince somebody to take almost as much risk for not, not nearly as much reward it's hard. It's hard. The first thing that you're going to do is realize that if they're going to join you as that first employee or that second employee, it's because of you. And so you're going to do the best with not strangers, but people in your network. You're not going to post a job listing and have strangers apply. You're probably going to find people who've worked with you before who want to join. So start there. Make sure whatever you're offering them is something they can't find elsewhere. You know what they can find elsewhere is getting paid more. 
you can offer them lots of equity and you absolutely should. You should offer your first few employees as much equity as possible. Your first employee should own 10% of your company as much as you can possibly That get. is way above market, folks. I just want to call it out before anybody starts signing paperwork. Way above market. There may well be, a, he may be right philosophically, directionally, but Holy it, it, Christ. It depends a lot on when they're if they're if they're joining you pre or post raising any sort of financing. Ash is absolutely right. If you're hiring your first employee after you've raised any form of venture financing, that's far too high. Um but if you're not how many actually, companies do you realistically think are giving ten percent to their first employee? It's that's a very small percentage, right? You I can say the philosophy is correct, but you're you have to agree that it's not the norm. Anything close to that, so well, you're a, you're enough. an extremist. That's like right. There's Antifa. something here that there, there's oh, something here the problem, though. The problem for sure. is most people most people don't understand how much dilution happens over the course of the business. So the question is more: How much do you want that first employee to own? Eventually, after all the rounds of financing, the rounds of dilution. Right, folks. So he's saying, yes, it is a philosophical thing. <laughs> no, it's not the market no, standard. No, I'm saying that the market Jeez. devalues people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. of course. But you're saying something that most of the market does not agree with, does not do. Like, I agree with you that, that it's the right kind of thing that someone who is an awesome first employee should have a massive chunk of the business if it IPOs and do very well. Um, and I look forward to the invite to their yacht. But that is not <laughs> what goes on, for sure. We, we argue about whether the market is a good judge. But let's, we can agree, apparently, that they should have a significant equity chunk, which is something they can't find elsewhere. You are not going to compete on salary, even if you raise money. It's just not possible. So don't even try. Make sure what you can do, though, is you can offer them a position in terms of their impact, their responsibility that's significant, that they can't find elsewhere. So in general, look for things you can offer them. And finally, it's going to take a long time, so be patient. Just like a co-founder, don't try to rush it. Don't try to get people in the door just because you desperately need this person and it's painful now. Like These people are foundational. If you're the company for a long time, don't use short-term pain to make long-term decisions. Be patient. Nick, what do you think? Not just about the equity thing, but in general about what does it take to convince people to join your early stage startup? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think you're paving, you're paving a new path here in a great way. So I'm definitely going to give two big enthusiastic path. thumbs up. Not the existing right. path, not a path that other people have used regularly, a new path, folks. That is absolutely the case. You know, when it comes to ultimately convincing folks to join your early stage startup, the key thing here is just do the thing, so to speak. And so what I mean by that is as you make progress on your startup and as you continue to reach new milestones, unlock new traction and get more proof that what you're doing actually makes sense, that's the kind of thing that folks want to be able to work on. They want to work on challenging problems. They want to work on challenging problems where there's proof that there's a market for it. They want to work on these challenging problems where it's proof that you may be able to go the distance. And so ultimately, doing things that demonstrates proof that there's a chance that you can go the distance is a huge value when it comes to folks considering whether they want to join your startup. Another thing to consider when it comes to getting folks to come aboard is making sure that you can empower them so they can contribute meaningfully. A lot of this comes, of course, by way of um, shares in the company. That's huge. Uh, the other key piece of this is ultimately ownership of key decisions and influence on certain priorities within the company. 
the more that you can make it clear that they've got the right kind of influence and they're really valued as a team member, the better. It'll increase the odds that you can bring on the right kind of folks. Because ultimately, you want folks that are passionate, they're going to go to battle with you, and that are really willing to uh, be a part of making these decisions and growing as the company grows. So, so Ashley, Nick, we've, we've all started companies. Where did you find your first employees? Where did you find them in, in your start journeys? Our first employees were, yeah, people that had, we'd worked with in the past or that were friends of friends in almost all cases. So your, your uh, sourcing suggestion is, is totally right, Sean, even though your equity barriers are complete science fiction. <laughs> Well, to uh, to provide context on our side, very similar, uh, built through great networks, either through referrals. And then, so referrals were huge for us. And then the other piece of it, and of course, I keep mentioning hackathons because this is something that's so near and dear to me here uh, that, you know, for the early days of my startup and journey. And pancake breakfasts. That's right. Every Every weekend was a hackathon and a pancake breakfast. And so that was clearly the way to build a great ecosystem of folks that were out there spending their time building creative things and ultimately open the door for us to be able to recruit great folks to come on our team. Are you sure it wasn't the carbs? You're absolutely positive it wasn't the carbs. I think it might have been the the food coma that came in because then you, (laughs) as soon as that final pancake goes down, you bring out the employment agreement, get them to sign. There may be some buyer's remorse on their side of the plate, but... That's what happens at a good pancake breakfast. These are the things that crypto founders admit online. <laughs> That's right. But remember, when if you're starting a company, only use authentic, 100% real maple syrup with your pancakes. None of this artificial stuff. It's very important. You start out with a sound foundation. It's so true. There, you couldn't have put it better. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. We want to make sure we have time for, for one last question in today's episode. Nick, what is the last question on our queue for today about hiring that initial team? All right, let's do it. Final question of the day. What should compensation be for a co-founder? And then on a related note, what should compensation be for a first employee? Ash, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, so clear separation here on salary and equity. With salary for both the co-founder and the first employee, we are talking about paying them enough. So you can't let a lack of personal cash become a distraction. Obviously, we don't want anyone living large, but if they can't afford to make rent, if they can't afford to buy groceries comfortably, then that's going to distract them from working hard on the company. A lot of the times, people might be in deep conversations with uh, a potential early employee who's coming from a corporate background. You cannot expect to match big co-salaries, as Sean already said. So it will involve sacrifice for those kinds of people. So for co-founders, I like to think about um, a band of between 50 and 90K a year, depending on how much you've raised, so how much is available, what part of the country you're in, what your day-to-day expenses are, depending on your situation, et cetera. Uh, And then with early employees, it might start at maybe 70K and go up to maybe 150 to 180K, depending on, again, how much you've raised, what their experience is and what their other previous salary was along with their commitments. But in general, uh, when you think about equity, then there's going to be a much larger skew, in my opinion, uh, versus, again, what Sean said earlier. So I think for co-founders, I like to see that be equal, mostly because 
with the vast majority of the business is still to be built. And there's an enormous amount of commitment expected to be a co-founder. Uh, and so even if you're coming in later, even if the other co-founders have maybe even put in their own capital, I still think that it should be a roughly equal split or moving in that direction over time, over a six, eight, 10 year period, et cetera. So for the first employee group, I like to think about it as maybe uh, the first 10 employees and a logarithmic scale. So the first 10 employees have maybe 10% of the company and uh, the first employee might get two and two to five percent of the company. And then maybe down at employee number 10, it might be uh, 0.1 to 0.25%. So it really declines rapidly, uh, but you do have those early employees getting big chunks of the company. Ash, one thing you said I'm curious about, if you have two co-founders and one of them invests money in the company and the other one doesn't, you'd still have them end up at 50-50, but doesn't the person who's investing is going to own more because they're buying shares as well as co-founding, right? How does that work out? Yeah, I'm happy with them to do a safe and you know have a, a little bit of preferred stock or convert that to common later. Um, but I think that the actual co-founder shares should be split evenly. Now, if so, and if someone contributes capital, then we should consider that as a completely separate line of the discussion. I don't like intermingling that because I think it gets complicated, especially if you have, you know, one wealthy founder who can do that easily. It could easily build significant resentment over a 10 year time period. And that's not going to be good for retention on one of the most critical people in your company. That's fair. I see what you're saying. So you wouldn't get more granted shares for investing, but in effect, you will own more of the company because you invested. Okay. I understand. That makes sense. I, uh, unsurprisingly, I agree with some of the things that I said. I disagree with others. I think that um, in general, most co-founder relationships, 50-50 doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be really out of whack, but you know, in many, it's very rare. You just have two people coming together at the same moment, adding the same things to the company and everything goes on the middle, it also introduces a very strange governance problem where technically it's impossible to have a majority vote of common shares, and sometimes that's what you need. I often see anything from 51-49 to 55-45. Those sorts of things are fine. Every situation is different. There are cases where 50-50 makes sense. Uh, I am not of the school of thought that you actually get a lot of long-term resentment out of these things. A lot of it depends on what you're bringing in. If you started the company... And you got it going and eventually you brought in a co-founder after five or six months, I can understand you owning a few percentage points more. And so it depends on how the company gets started and, and how it gets structured. As you already know, I, I believe in giving your first employees more equity than Ash does. But in general, whatever you do, give them as much as possible. Because here's the reality. Over courses of funding, they get diluted. And so if you give somebody 1% as the first employee, all of a sudden, first round of funding, they get diluted by 15, 20%, then another 15, 20%, another 15, 20%. All of a sudden, you realize that first employee owns 0 0.2, 0 0.3% of your company. And are you really evaluating that contribution? Are you, are you giving them what they're worth? You can start to feel bad later at a point at which you can't do anything about it anymore. You can't go back in time and issue them shares at a, at a reasonable strike price. So be as generous as possible. You will not regret it later, wherever on the generosity scale you live. And the last thing I'll say about compensation is that um, if you haven't raised money, you probably can't pay people. But if you have raised money, I think that that, that insecurity around money can actually be a, a stress factor you don't need. So you don't want anybody worrying about how they're going to pay rent, 
how they're going to buy food. Some startups, they try to be very cheap and pay as absolute little as possible. And I applaud that. I'm all about capital efficiency, but nobody should be worried about can they afford rent next month because that distraction is going to hurt them. So I think Ash is right. You don't want to pay them a huge salary, but you Ash want to make sure right. nobody's right. He said it in quotes, and, frame it. Yeah, well, about one thing. Eventually, I mean, everybody's right about something, right? I mean, Rand, you know, <laughs> statistics Stop clock is always right twice a day. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, man. So Ash, actually, so following up with that, or Nick, are there mistakes in, in, in compensation that, that people make? I mean, one example would be a co-founder relationship where it's like 90 one person is 90%, their person is 10. That does lead to resentment later. What are other mistakes people could make that they should avoid? I wanted to ask again about the 50-50 split when it comes to the equity allocation for two co-founders. And this is something that it is debated a lot. And ultimately, to answer your question, what are the mistakes that people make? I think the ultimate framework is optimizing for things that increase the likelihood of a win and, of course, the potential scale of the win. And so going back to that 50-50 split, I have seen it where folks do um, stress over even, let's say, a percentage point or two when it comes to two co-founders. And so, Sean, I wanted to probe on that one a little further. That seems to be something that ultimately could lead to uh, either a fractured relationship or ultimately some uh, discontent on this journey. But you've seen that this is ultimately something that people can navigate skillfully without an issue. Oh, just this week, I talked to a co-founder where they had a 50-50 split and then they had a falling out, but nobody had a majority common, so they couldn't do anything. And they had to do some shenanigans to try to get past that. Um, I've, I've seen situations where, you know, somebody, the resentment builds because they aren't equal. Maybe one one co-founder is full-time and the other one's part-time. If you divide it 50-50 in that case, the person who's full-time can start to build resentment. So I just, I find it very rare that you have this perfectly timed founding team of two people starting full-time at exactly the same moment, bringing equal amounts into the business that mean that 50-50 is the best situation. Mm -hmm. But let's be honest, if if at some point somebody's going to build resentment around their ownership stake and it's fairly close, there's probably all sorts of other issues you have. Like it's probably not the source of all your problems and it's certainly not going to be the answer to all of them either. Yeah, absolutely makes sense for sure. Yes, Sean, I'm Ash, and I believe that you're absolutely correct on that. Thank you, Ash. I appreciate you saying that for once. That was great. That wasn't me, folks. There it is, twice <laughs> in one episode. <laughs> oh, my British accent is any good. We've run out of time, unfortunately, <laughs> so you can't deal with my horrible, Ash and- <laughs> my horrible Ash impression anymore, but we've done our best to educate you about bringing in that initial team. It's hard. Good luck. I hope you are able to find the people you need. And Ash and Nick, thanks for all the questions and the experience. As always, it's been great. Yeah, so much fun. Thank you all. At least I'm not emotionally wounded at the end of this episode like last time. <laughs> <laughs> There's still more episodes to come. And speaking of which, if you have questions you'd like us to answer in future episodes, please find us on our website, thestartuphealthdesk.com or find us on Twitter, thestartuphd. We'd love to answer your questions in future episodes. But for now, this help desk is closed. Good luck in building your business and we will see you next time.